Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special audio commentary for Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge from 1989. My name is Michael Felsher. I'm the owner and operator of Red Shirt Pictures, and I have with me today here the film's director, Mr. Richard Friedman. How are you, sir? I'm well. Good to talk to you, Michael. So before we delve into your career and specifically Phantom of the Mall, I was curious, when was the last time that you saw this movie? I would say it would have to be about 20 years ago that I actually looked at the movie and watched the movie. And uh, it was from a DVD that I got off of eBay at the time because I no longer had any copies of it or anything. And it was one of these make-at-home DVDs that uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty awful. I mean, yeah, we certainly have come a long way in the days of video mastering. I mean, this is a, a wonderful new HD transfer we're looking at. It looks great. I'm looking at it now. It does. It really does. This is going to be quite a revelation for people who haven't seen the movie in a long time. But uh, before we get into Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, I want to talk about uh, how you got started in the filmmaking industry in the beginning and what led you to want to become a filmmaker and your early influences and all that. Well, I'll tell you how, how I got into the business. Um, I was pre-med in, back in college, and, uh, but I always wanted to get into the film business. Um, and I always wanted to shoot movies. And not necessarily horror movies, but horror movies were okay. It was the kind of thing that I would, I would do. Anyway, um, I, I enrolled in medical school, got into medical school, um, submitted to get in and got into medical school. And then I went to my parents and I said, hey, I don't want to get into a... I don't want to get into a medical school. I want to go to film school. So I ended up going to NYU Film School, which is a three-year master's program. Film school back then wasn't what it is right now. Um, but uh, it was a good school, and I, you know, I learned a lot. And uh, I had to make a thesis film in the final year. And in order to make the thesis film, in my young naivete, I decided I was going to raise half a million dollars. And um, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was going to do it. And I went out and I got a script based on a true story called Death Mask. And, um, and it was, uh, I tried to raise the money. In fact, I almost got Bayer Aspirin at one point to give me a half a million dollars if I put their aspirin in every scene until they realized I don't have distribution for the movie. <laughs> and then it was coming close to handing in the uh, final thesis film, otherwise I wasn't going to graduate from NYU, so I panicked. And one night I was sitting at home and I said, I'm just going to borrow 5000 from my father and go and make a, a short film. And I'm going through all these past uh, notes and stuff that I've gotten over the past, I'd say, eight, nine months of trying to raise money. And I found this, this one note from a friend of mine's girlfriend who said, call these people. Um, in a, they produced um, Broadway shows, and they produced Shenandoah on Broadway, and maybe they're interested. So I said, should I do it or not do it, or should I just give it up and make a short? But finally I made one decision to do it, and um, I called this woman, and she answers the phone, and she goes, hello, an older lady. And she, she goes, hello. I said, my name is Richard Friedman. I'm with NYU. I'm at NYU, and I'm a film student, and I want to, I want to make a movie for half a million dollars. At which point she said, send me the script. And I sent her the script, and two days later, I got a phone call from her that there's a ticket at Kennedy Airport to Scottsdale, Arizona. We're going to make your movie. 
And that's how I got into the business. I kid you not. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a start to your filmmaking career. I, I do, did want to ask, how did you get Farley Granger for the movie? Uh, I didn't get Farley Granger. The, uh, the woman that I just mentioned and her husband, the film ended up being produced by her, her husband, and her lover. <laughs> and, uh, and she knew Farley Granger. And she knew Danny Aiello, who was in that movie, right. Death Mask. But the, the interesting part about it is um, it was called Death Mask and based on a true story about a boy who comes into the morgue. Um, by no means a horror film, but uh, everybody started thinking it was a horror film, and it opened at Cannes. Um, and uh, I started getting calls for horror films, and that's how I got into the horror business. Boy, we used a lot of extras in this film. I, I didn't realize it. We got a lot of people. Now it would be the cost of the budget. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank oh, look at that. Yeah. Now, yeah. Again, you're, you're shooting in a location that gives you a lot of inherent production value anyway. Right. This place no longer exists, by the way. It was, the, was this the Sherman Oaks Galleria? This was the enclosed Sherman Oaks Galleria. Um, and now it's an open, it's totally redone and open Sherman Oaks Gallery, so nobody could hang from the ceiling like they did in this movie. That's Kimber Sisson. She was going out with the actor Richard Greco at the time, who would frequently come down to the set. One aspect of your early career which I find very interesting was that in the mid-1980s, there was sort of a boom of all these syndicated anthology horror shows that came about. And you found your way working on pretty much all of them. Uh, some multiple episodes, some just a one-off here and there. But y you did them all for everything from Tales from the Dark Side to Friday the 13th. Can you even remember all the ones that you worked on? I did a bunch of Friday the 13th. I did a bunch of Tales from the Dark Sides. And then I got into a syndicated and network television, which I ended up doing. Um, Lois and Clark and Silk Stockings and all kinds of stuff back then. And Baywatch Nights. So, and Baywatch Nights. I did, a, I did a bunch of Baywatch Nights. In fact, I did the pilot episode for Baywatch Nights. So what about your second feature, which was also a horror film, which was Scared Stiff? How did that one come about for you? Well, the second feature, Scared Stiff, um, basically I, I got hired for. And, and uh, I saw a post, an ad in Variety looking for a director. And I called up and they answered the phone. Somebody answered the phone. And said, I said, hey, I'm a director. I, I, just, did a, I just did a movie. Um, would you be interested in seeing it? He says, why don't you come over now? And I came over and he hired me for the film. And that's how Scared Stiff came about. And I ended up doing some substantial rewrites on the script with him during a major blizzard back in New York. And uh, we put it together, and that's how, that's how Scared Stiff came about. We shot it in Florida because um, we, we were looking for a colonial house. The whole thing takes place in a colonial house. And then we get to Florida, and we find out that at the time there were very few colonial houses. So uh, we managed to find one, and that was where we shot it. So jumping back to Phantom of the Mall here for a second, we see 
Mr. Polly Shore here making an appearance. And this was, if I'm not mistaken, one of his first, maybe even his first uh, film appearance, wasn't it? It was his absolutely his first movie. And um, I found him at the Comedy Store, which his mother owned, Mitzi Shore. Right. right. And uh, I was there one night. I, I was there one night, and we were we were casting for this character. And I saw Paulie, and I came in the next day, and I said to Tom Fries, who was the producer of this, Chuck Fries's son, um, I said, Paulie's perfect for it. We got to get him. And there he is. And he was, he was perfect for the role. And then I guess who would have been certainly the biggest name at that point around the time you made this movie? You have Morgan Fairchild here. How did Morgan come into the play for the movie? Yeah, Morgan was the biggest name in the movie. Now we have Jonathan Goldsmith, who is, you know, known for his commercials. And uh, Paulie, who's done bigger and better movies after that. Um, and uh, Rob Estes, who has done a lot of TV and a lot of movies. Oh, yeah. So, but Morgan was the name. So after Scared Stiff, you went into a very quick and low-budget uh, film, which I enjoy a great deal, called Doom Asylum, uh, <laughs> which was uh, made out in uh, on the East Coast, and it was in you know, an abandoned asylum somewhere out in New Jersey, wasn't it? it? It well, yeah, it was an abandoned asylum, and it was a the place was a disaster, um, but it worked great for us. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a mess, but uh, I had a friend, Steve Minkin, and Steve uh, came to me and he said, "Listen." I'm kind of tied into Films Around the World, which is a distribution company back in New York. And he said, uh, I will make, uh, we have $90,000. You want to go out and make a movie? And we said, <laughs> I said, sure, let's go make a movie. And uh, we got, I think it was Rick Marks at the time, and he wrote this script, which was a satire. And uh, we kind of, we went and shot it. I think we shot in three weeks or something like that at, back then but what was interesting about the movie was we came up doom asylum we came up really short on the time so it was about 20 uh 25 30 minutes less than it should be so we ended up putting in this black and white white uh footage from back in the 20s 30s oh right right Right. And just to pat it out, and then Variety gives us a review and says it was brilliant that we put it in there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I'm not kidding you. And you're certainly not going to uh, correct them and let them know that it no, was absolutely at the time. No, right? Are you kidding? It was <laughs> my intentions. Absolutely. <laughs> I think I still have that review. It was it was a great review for a ridiculous movie. And ridiculous reason. Now, during all of this time when you're doing these movies and these television shows, were you a fan of horror to begin with, or was this simply a situation of, well, the money and the finance and the opportunities are here, why mess with it? I've always been a fan of a specific type of horror. I've, I've always liked dark thrillers. And um, the, way I, the way I was first introduced to dark thrillers was I lived around the corner from the Kent Movie Theater in Brooklyn. And my parents used to take me to whatever movie was there. So I ended up seeing all the R-rated movies and everything when I was a kid. 
And there was one movie called Games with Catherine Ross and James Caan and Simone Signore. And um, I think that movie really set me up for the kind of movies that I wanted to make. So then when, uh, when horror came along, after everybody thought that Death Mask was a, was a horror film because of the name, um, I started getting these offers for horror, and I, I wasn't against it. I, I kind of liked it. I liked doing horror, and it was fun. That's, that's Tom Fridley, I think it was, that just ran up the stairs. Somehow he's related to John Travolta. So it seems horror was certainly still something that was in your wheelhouse, so to speak. Um, yeah, I mean, so I ended up basically doing a lot of horror films, and it was fine. It was it was fun. You know, it, it's interesting. If you look at the films that I do, I look back now, they're horror films, but they're they're not really scary in in that way. I mean, Phantom of the Mall is more of a tongue-in-cheek approach to horror films. Doom Asylum was a satire, and Scared Stiff, I guess, was the closest to a horror film of anything, and that... That wasn't particularly scary. Now, all these scenes that take place in sort of the air ducts and stuff, these are all shot out in a studio in Valencia? That's correct. This was all shot in a studio and and everything was built. The the tunnels were built and... uh, this, this was, the majority of the film was shot at Sherman Oaks Galleria, and it, it really fit the movie well. You could, take, you could have taken the script and just placed it in there, and it, everything fit. But this scene that we're looking at right now, and this was in Wet Seal, a store called Wet Seal in Sherman Oaks Galleria, and, and that, one of the girls in the dressing room turned out to be a pretty big B-movie person. Oh, it was Bring Stevens, I believe. Yeah. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. I had no clue we were casting her when we cast her, but that's her. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, yeah, now look at these. They just look right up at you. Oh, yes, my dear. <laughs> All right, here's a new one. Oh, yeah. Come on, take it off. Oh, God. Oh, yes. Now the bra, yes. And the... Oh, don't do that. Oh, man, I thought we were going to have a show here. He shut that damn thing off. Posner's coming in on five. There's some kind of strange knocking in the G-section ventilation ducts. Check it out. Right, Chief. And as he leaves there, I mean, we mentioned Jonathan Goldsmith before, but he would uh, definitely be recognizable to people of today as the most interesting man in the world from a very successful uh, series of Dos Equis commercials. So that became kind of a big thing for him. You know, what's really interesting about this movie is that a, a lot of these people have gone on in one, one way or another and kind mm-hmm. of made a name for themselves. And um, when I cast this movie... Nobody was anybody except for Morgan Fairchild. Right, yeah, she was the big I name. Mean, uh, yeah. Now, in this store, there's there's someone who works there. I'm I'm pretty. I'm not sure if it's this scene or not. Yeah. Kelly Rutherford. Mm-hmm. Does that ring a bell? She she's done a t- she's done a ton of TV. And, and Tom Free said to me, um, the producer came to me and said, "We got to put this girl in the movie. She's going to be really popular." Hmm. So I think she had a 
a few series, a few pretty popular series later on. And she was just a sales girl here or something. I'll show you when she comes up. Yeah, I think she, oh, she's been on a bunch of series. She was on uh, uh, Gossip Girl. And uh, she was Pretty Little Liars, a whole bunch of them. Hey, girls, you want to pull my chain? <laughs> Tell you a funny story about the, uh, the, the mall. When we were shooting, uh, our lights set off the sprinkler system. Oh, God. And they had to shut down the mall. They had to shut down the mall for two days. Really? Two days? I mean, oh, we flooded the mall. It was a mess. Yeah. I mean, the escalators stopped working. I mean, all the sprinklers went off, and we, we really flooded the place. I'm surprised they let you come back after something like that. Well, what was really funny was we kept on shooting. A lot mm-hmm. of the mall was shut down, uh-huh. but we continued to shoot. Right. So they never stopped us. <laughs> <laughs> That was on stage. All of this stuff is on stage. No, I, I'm looking at this movie now, and it's never it's never looked as good as it does now. I've never seen anything um, in these tunnels as clearly. Yeah, that's the thing with these old with the old VHS uh, masters done back then. I mean, you. Blacks were so crushed you couldn't make out anything, any kind of detail in scenes like this. But right. they went they went back to the I believe the interpositive for this, and so they're actually able to uh, you're actually able to see what you actually shot back then. Exactly, you know the opening sequence when he he takes the stuff, I I could never see anything. I shot it and I I didn't know what I shot, <laughs> um, and it was it was crystal clear here. Well, did you have video playback back then? Um, no. That's a good question. No, we didn't. I did not have video playback back then. Number one, it would have restricted us because it would have been all been cabled. Right. And uh, video playback was just coming in. In fact, the first time I ever used any kind of video playback was on a... I think it was Tales from the Dark Side. Oh, okay. Where they somehow managed to get it. And for a low-budget show, uh, it was surprising, but I, I think they brought it in on that. But I never used it on this. Eye-popping special effect there. <laughs> So you've done a few features before this movie comes up. You've been in television. I mean, you had a lot under your belt in a relatively short amount of time by the time Phantom of the Mall comes up. So I'm curious, because uh, I know I know a lot about the development of this movie and that uh, originally someone else was going to direct, but then uh, you were brought in. And so I'm curious as to how this movie came up for you and who contacted you and what you thought of the project. It was interesting. I had written a script called Bungalow 9, which was a dark thriller, which is what I wanted to do. And uh, I had sent it to Freeze Entertainment. And um, they read the script, and they wanted to buy it from me. And I said, yeah, okay, as long as I can direct it, you guys can, you guys can have it. I'll come do it. 
And they said, okay, but we have another script that we'd like you to do first called Phantom of the Mall. And they sent me the script. I was in New York. They're in L.A. Uh, they sent me the script, and uh, I read the script, and I said, okay, let's do it. And they ended up flying me out to L.A. to, uh, to meet with me for this film. And uh, I ended up coming out to L.A. permanently, though I never intended that to be permanent. But I ended up coming out here as a result of Phantom of the Mall. Once I was here, I was just working consistently afterwards and I never went back to New York. I mean, I'm a New Yorker at heart. I would never have left New York intentionally. But once I got out here and was working and had a family, this was my home. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people uh, who are East Coasters who just, uh, the work was on the West Coast, so that's where you kind of had to go. Yeah, but I never really intended on that happening. Um, you know, I was going to come out here and do Phantom of the Mall and go back to New York and live happily ever after, but um, it didn't work that way. And it was a good thing it didn't work that way because I ended up getting offers for movies after this and doing stuff after this. So um, New York wasn't, you know, even though I would have loved to have been there, it wasn't as productive as being here. Did you have anything to do with any rewrites of the script or anything when you came on board, or did you pretty much go with what they already had? I pretty much went with what we what they had, and I might have done some minor rewrites to it, but um, it was pretty much this movie when I received it. Well, it's interesting because you hear a lot of tales about how a director will come into a project and kind of take it over and change everything. But in this particular situation, it sounds like Freeze really changed everything long before you ever got there. I mean, the screenwriters have talked about this quite a bit. So you just were dealing with the results. It, it, when I received this script, it seemed that this was the script that they wanted to make at, at Freeze. And, uh, you know, I was young and they were flying me out from New York and I said, OK, let's... This is what we'll make. And I think I might have done some minor rewrites with Tom at the time. Tom's since passed away. But um, I think I, I did some minor rewrites with him. And But it was the original script for the most part. I wanted to ask a little bit about Freeze Entertainment because at the time that the, this movie was going on, they had formed Freeze Entertainment and were trying to essentially be their own kind of autonomous unit rather than producing films for other distributors. And it was uh, Charles Freeze, who only recently passed away. Uh, he passed away back in April. Um, and then Tom Thomas Freeze, who was your uh, producer on this. And sadly, he died very young. He was 47. And his, oddly enough, the day he died was September 10th, 2001. Wow. Uh, which is, wow. Uh, yeah. That was, uh, but uh, what were your interactions like with the, the Freeze family? And what did you enjoy working with them? Absolutely. They were they were wonderful to work with. You know, the Freeze family is pretty much, they're known for their TV movies. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much what they did and what kept them in business. And this was the first movie that they wanted to do and kind of set up a franchise. And it seems like they were very anxious to set up a franchise because they added Eric's Revenge yeah. right after Phantom of the Mall, which, which sounds to me like a sequel. I, when I heard that, I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> What are you guys doing? But, you know, they were they were going to market it. And um, 
they, they can do whatever they wanted to do. But anyway, Tom was a terrific guy. He was a great guy. He had a great family. I mean, Tom just died too soon. Yeah. Um, he was terrific. Chuck was, I met Chuck a number of times and he was great. Um, it was it was not difficult making a movie with these guys at all. And um, it was it was actually a lot of fun when it came down to it. And then a few years after this movie, Tom came to me, I remember, and he said to me, you want to do, another, want to do something else? I think he was sick at the time, and it, it never ended up happening. This is an example of the great deal of firework in this movie. Well, we did a lot of special effects on this movie. Look at this fire and everything. Yeah, there's a there's quite a bit of pyrotechnic work in the movie. Actually, I was that was something yeah. I wanted to cover with you. Had you worked a lot? Have you done a lot of pyrotechnic work at this point in your career yet? I had done some. I had done some before, but um, nothing with a guy on fire coming out of a store and going off the uh, third floor of a mall and right. falling on right. fire. So, uh, you know, they they had said to me at the time. They said you got to test it out first before that. And I said, are you going to light me on fire? And he, they said, no, but you're going to go off the third floor balcony, which I ended up doing with the stunt department. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. Well, that's certainly a good way to show, hey, if the director's comfortable with it, uh, I guess we can do it too. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I, I ended up doing it. I never would have wanted to do it. I never asked to do it. But they said, you guys, you should do it. Why not? So I, I did it. But it was into an airbag, which was fine. And it was, uh, you know, they told me how to fall. So I fell correctly. This scene, by the way, was shot after we shot the movie. Oh, it was? Yes, we went back and shot this because we had realized that we had a penthouse, uh, Playboy, you know, Playboy centerfold. And we never really used her to her full potential. So we, we came back and we reshot this. We shot this, not reshot it. And then what about the casting of uh, Derek Rydall as the Phantom? He was He's done a couple other horror movies around the same time. He did Popcorn, which has become a, a popular cult favorite. What are your memories of working with Derek? Because he had to be in makeup for almost all of the Oh yeah, I mean he—that was pretty extensive his makeup, um, and he was Derek was great. And in fact, uh, you know, I again I cast Derek, not knowing he had done anything else at the time, and uh, mm -hmm. I cast him on being Derek Rydell and and being right for the role. So that's why he's in the movie. We talked a little bit about Pauly Shore and getting him cast. What was he like on set? What was he like to interact with back then? Because obviously all the big success in movies he had was going to come after this movie. So you were kind of catching him really right when he was just kind of open to the industry and seeing what was what was what and what was, you know, he couldn't have possibly known uh, the stardom that was going to happen to him after that. What was he like just to interact with on a daily basis? Pauly had never done anything before. But Paulie is Paulie, and he's very much the character that you see in this movie at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I can't vouch for him now, but at the time he was the character that you see in this movie. And he was having fun going from store to store and, you know, putting a notch on the camera every time he met a new girl. Um, <laughs> Paulie was a great guy. He was great to work with. He was he was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I look back at this now and I, I pretty much everybody in this movie was into making this movie. And we kind of we kind of had fun doing it. Um, we shot, if I'm not mistaken, I think we ended up shooting maybe seven weeks or something like that, which is kind of unheard of for a movie of this budget. And let it be known that we will prosecute shoplifters to the fullest extent of the law. I'll catch you later, Chief. God damn it. How many times have I... How many times have I told you not to say... <laughs> yeah, Dad. Too many, Dad. Too many. You know, you mentioned you shot for about seven weeks, and... You know, shooting in the mall, I, I just, it must have been very challenging to be there during, you know, non-operating hours and then maybe shooting a little bit while there were people around. I mean, what was that whole experience like being there on a daily basis? You know, what was interesting about this movie, I look at it now, we were shooting this movie um, while the mall was actually operating. We shot a lot of nights, mm -hmm. but we didn't always shoot nights. So we shot, and we shot a substantial amount of the movie while there were people in it. Hmm. And it was a busy mall at the time. Well, sure, yeah. This is the the eighties were the prime decade for mall activity. Oh yeah. And we had checked out a, a bunch of malls before this. I remember we uh, we went to about three or four malls, and somehow we, I, we ended up here, which was the perfect mall for us. Well, Sherman Oaks Galleria was probably at that point already kind of used to having movies and television series shoot there because a couple of years before you were there uh chopping mall had come chopping through. mall yeah 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 so they were yeah. they were probably used to a lot of uh, horror movie shenanigans happening yeah yeah come on let's hurry up before they come oh, back just relax here look watch you sit down no i mean look at paulie here this is this is paulie <laughs> He's been through a lot. I'm sure he's matured and gone through a lot. But Paulie was a really, he's a cool guy. The other guy, what's his? You know, I don't remember his name, but I ended up doing a uh, an episode of Tales from the Dark Side with him also. After that, oh, the other the uh, the other security guard. Oh, that's Gregory Cummings. Yeah, Gregory Cummings. I ended up working with him afterwards. And he was an interesting casting choice because as soon as you look at him, you say, "Okay, this guy's clearly up to something. This is this this guy's bad news." <laughs> and and so you're he's he's not quite a red herring in the movie, but he's almost kind of that because you're thinking, "Well, what what's his role in this, and how's it going to shake out?" And then it's like, "Oh, okay." But he just he just has such a slimy look in the picture. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was great for the he was great for it. You know, everything in this film. We, we were going for the obvious. We, we weren't going for anything mysterious or secretive. I mean, uh, he was a bad guy. We cast him as a bad guy. <laughs> you know? He looks like a bad guy. Right, right. 
and then Rob Estes, who would go on to a lot of success after this. Again, you you have a knack for that because mm-hmm. in, even in uh, uh, Doom Asylum, Kristen Davis years before, you know her success with uh, Sex in the City had her in there. So you've you've had kind of a habit of casting some really uh, you know up and coming talent before they had really achieved anything yet. That happens to be true. I mean, I I cast Allison Brie in Born. Mm-hmm. That was her first role ever. She had done one day on Hannah Montana before <laughs> that. Um, Kaylee Cuoco in a film called uh, Forever Together. All right, yep, there you go. First role ever. So, uh, you know, I seem to have a, a, a way of finding uh, these these new starlets that turn out to be superstars. There's Gregory Cummings. And it's it's so strange to watch the movie now, all these years later. Back then, watching it when it came out, you're just like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a mall and there's a record store and everything. Now this feels like a period piece. Absolutely, and it is. It is a period piece. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean it's. I mean, no, this 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 environment, this social environment, just does not exist anymore. And what little bit of it exists right now is soon to be gone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about when this movie was being made. There was a lot of, I guess what you would call Phantom of the Opera fever kind of out there because the stage show was in like, it, you know, in its upper curve of its popularity. Robert Englund was doing his own Phantom of the Opera. There was another low-budget thing called Phantom of the Ritz. And then you had Phantom of the Mall. It seemed like everyone had something going on with Phantom of the of the Opera in one form or another. Were you aware of any of these other productions at all? Oh, yeah. I had seen Phantom, Phantom of the Opera on Broadway right. with Michael Crawford at the time. Mm. And, um, oh, yeah, yeah. I had, of course, I had seen the early Phantom of the Opera that was done, you know, years before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very familiar with it. In fact, when I got this script, I said, God, why would they want to do Phantom in the Mall? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it turned out okay, you know? It was, I'm looking at it now. It's, I actually buy it for what it is. You know, it's funny, but when I look at, right. when I look at the movies I've done so long ago, um, I, I kind of can look at them with an objective eye. I, I mean, uh, when I looked at when I right. looked at Scared Stiff, you know, Scared Stiff was a movie that I never wanted to watch because I was afraid to watch it. And it, it turned out when I watched mm-hmm. it, I said, you know what? It's not it, it, it's it's not half bad. It's okay. And I watched this movie now, and for what it is, it kind of is an okay movie. a good chase yeah this is i was just about to say it's a very good chase i mean again you're in the elevator he's on top of the elevator they're falling downstairs yeah. and i mean you're not this is a lot of real practical stunt work you got a really good stunt team on this movie we did right i'd like to take your picture for a weekend section you mind no not at all always glad to oblige the press so while she's on screen here let's talk about your experiences working with morgan fairchild who was of course an immensely popular TV actress, but had done some film work, including her work in the seduction for horror fans. What was she like? 
Morgan was terrific. As a, as a matter of fact, after uh, after um, we finished this movie, I ended up getting calls from producers saying that Morgan recommended me um, for it. So she 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 was, she oh, was really? incredibly nice. She was very nice um, to work with. Um, very prompt and very open to any kind of suggestions or anything like that. In terms of the mall stores, because, you know, I was looking around, I'm seeing Miller's Outpost, Gap, a whole bunch of different places. Were there any stores that were off limits in terms of you can't film near here or they didn't want to be featured or was it pretty much just whatever, wherever? It didn't really much matter. You know, it's funny because it would be much tougher right now to film in, in stores like this. Um, back then, mm-hmm. you kind of just walk in and say, we want to shoot in your store. And... Um, you give them, a, give them a couple of bucks, and you're in the store. So I don't remember having any any problems getting in anywhere. I know that Wet Seal was was our go-to store because, uh, you know, we, we did a bunch of stuff in there. Um, but um, other than that, you know, we, we shot in this restaurant, Sleuths, and there was no problem. They let us in. Mm-hmm. This was the big restaurant in the mall. Did you have to change anything in the mall itself? Did you add anything to accentuate what was there, or did you really just use kind of the mall as it was? Well, one thing I know we had to do, we had to do a lot of rigging on the ceiling, because if you remember at the end of the movie, if you've seen this movie, um, there's a lot of crawling around on the uh, on the roof of the, uh, of the place, and uh, we had to rig all of that, and it had to be safe. So, uh, but... Other than that, I mean, there wasn't a lot of production design. We, we basically shot them all. You know, we, we didn't have a big budget in this movie. I, I remember, I think the budget was somewhere around 800000 or something like that. And for a movie that shoots seven weeks with a cast as big as this, um, there wasn't a lot of money to, for extras. So uh, we, we shot them all for what it was. What are your uh, memories of working with your DP on this film, Harry Mathias? Harry Mathias. Harry was, he was a good guy, Harry. He was great. Um, you know, I wish he would have been a little faster. And I've learned, I've learned how to push DPs now mm-hmm. since then. Um, but um, he, was, he was great to work with. Um, and, we, you know, he got the job done. This guy was a find. Talk about being obvious. He, he, the piano player, right. he looks the role. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw this guy, I remember I said, he's got it. <laughs> he's in. I remember reading um, an article in Fango, uh, Fangoria, about the making of the film. And at the time, you were frustrated uh, by several things in terms of just the physical production of the movie and that you had several units shooting at once in order to get everything done, and that was something you weren't used to. You didn't like the idea that uh, you didn't have an eye on everything at the same time. Was that kind of new to you at that time on this film? Well, y- yes, it was new to me. And, and what's interesting is I've since learned that that's the way you get this done, right. and that's the way to do it. But um, at the time, I would kind of scoot. Be- I think we had... I think basically we had two units shooting. Mm-hmm. And the second unit was just, uh, you know, a lot of pickup stuff and that. 
but I would run, I would be frustrated that, uh, you know, I wasn't there to see it and I would run back and forth between first unit and second unit mm -hmm. and try and be there for everything. And uh, again, I've since learned that's, that's difficult. The thing about second unit for me to this day is that uh, they got to get it right and they got to listen to you. Mm -hmm. So like I, I was doing a TV series and I had uh, this actress who was fit. They were finishing a chase and I said, make sure the chase goes left to right. It's got to be left to right. And she has the gun in her right hand. And I got back the footage from second unit and she was going right to left and she had the gun in her left hand. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of like why I like to be there for everything. But you can't. Right, right. Any memories of the snake? I remember rigging the... Did you, did you have to, I would imagine that would have to be a little memorable. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you something. The snake, I added. Oh, really? I remember that clearly, yes. The snake was me. <laughs> <laughs> the snake never came up through the toilet bowl in the original draft. Well, that plays into, I think, every you know person's fear about, you know, the, hearing the the tales of the snake coming up from a toilet, and it's just like you're in your most vulnerable spot. So why not add something like that, you know? Well, what's interesting is I have read stories where there were actual snakes in the toilet, so mm. <laughs> it's not that tough to believe. No, it's not. It's not that far fetched. So that's the reason I think most no. people, are, it really gets to people because it's like it could be, it could happen. That's my favorite scene in the movie, the snake in the toilet scene. <laughs> Out of everything, that's the one. That's <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite scene. Call me when you do it. Peter, thanks a lot for being such a friend. It's been real hard for me to open up with anybody else since Eric. I really loved him a lot. He was in he he was in good shape, Derek. I didn't realize. Yeah, he was. You know, he uh, he had a lot to do in this movie. It was a lot of physical stuff for him, and he did as much of it as we could give him. You know, see shots like this where you're panning into the store and looking around. Again, it just you're in a location that just offers you production value, no matter what way you shoot. So it's there's like, Kelly Rutherford. Anyway. Oh, that's her right that there? That was Kelly Rutherford. That's her. Yeah, you were saying. Um, yeah, any direction you shoot in, you got stuff. And it's yeah. great. The hell do you mean my son's hanging around Windsor's? I told that little bastard that the mall was off limits. I know, sir, and I was going to escort him off the premises. But I thought you might want to handle it a little more discreetly. Discreetly, huh? Yeah. I'll discreetly kick his ass out the exit door. Hair, all right. See you tomorrow, Sue. Good night, Terry. So, who was the active producer on the film that was there on set with you, or were you left pretty much to your own devices? No, it was Tom. Tom Freeze. Oh, it was Tom. It was Tom Freeze. Yeah, Tom would come down all the time. And Tom was great. He was a great guy to work with. He was a, you know, very understanding, and and he he was more my friend than anything. Um, but Tom was the the line producer, actually, and the the executive producer of the movie. I don't know if he got an executive producer's credit. I think Chuck got that, but uh, 
He was the producer. And didn't he also, was he in charge of the second unit or was that someone else? Tom might have run off once or twice and, and ran second unit, but uh, if I remember correctly, it was somebody from the stunt department who, uh, oh, okay. who did some of the second unit stuff, which is usually the case. Yeah, speaking of the stunt, I mean, you had a lot. I mean, this I was looking at the credits for the stunt, and there's a lot of stunt people on this movie, like it, it, almost 30 well, there's people. There's a lot of stunts. Yeah. For a, for I mean, a low-budget movie, there were substantial stunts and a lot of stunts in this. But you had some uh, some people, and again, this is another situation where you have uh, some people in there who would go on to big things. One person in particular, uh, David Ellis, who would go on mm -hmm. to become a director and uh, worked on the Matrix sequels and uh, also directed Final Destination 2. And, you know, he, he went on to do wow. a lot of stuff. And then he had R.A. Rondell, part of a, a stunt dynasty with the Rondell family. And, uh, you know, John Meyer, Tom Morg, a whole, people, a whole bunch of people had done a lot of genre work around that time. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I don't remember where they came from initially. I think uh, they might have been connected to uh, Freeze or something because one of my closest friends in the world, Rick McCollum, is a stunt coordinator, and I didn't end up using him on this, and I knew him back then. So it must have been something that we ended up uh, just using one group that knew each other. See, that was a stunt. That wasn't him. Yep. That fell. Right. <laughs> Thing I actually wanted to discuss with you in, in whatever detail you can is that you know I talked about how the mall offers you countless opportunities to have a rich looking film but in terms of filming a sequence like this where you want to have some nuance with the lighting and kind of almost a noirish kind of aspect to it how difficult was it to kind of light things in a way that didn't you know just come naturally with the mall because a mall has such big open spaces and natural lighting and all the stores and everything so it's hard to necessarily light it for a specific mood or a, a horror mood or a suspense mood how how difficult was it at times to achieve that extremely difficult and you know i i remember at the time i would harry and i would talk and we knew the lighting was flat if you look at the lighting in the in the uh tunnels here um, it was a lot moodier because you could light the tunnels. Uh, when you're in a big place like the mall, especially like an escalator or something like that, I mean, there's, there's only so much you can do. Um, we, tried, I, we tried to make it, and, and that's why I'm saying this is not, I never looked at this as a scary film, a frightening film, or, or a horror film, because it, it, we couldn't light it the way we really wanted to light it. We couldn't create the mood that we wanted to create. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of benefits of shooting in a mall, and there's a lot of shortcomings in shooting in a mall. And one of the shortcomings is the lighting. Although we did have a lot of lights. I mean, we had enough lights to set off the sprinklers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back to that story. Did they? Did the how? How hard did the mall come down on you after that? You know, they never said anything that I know of. They might have really? said something to Tom. But mm -hmm. I, I had never heard anything afterwards. You know, I know they were down for two days. There were a lot of stores that were flooded. I mean, they, those things went off, and they don't stop. No, they don't. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so uh, it got wet. 
But we found we found other spaces and continued to shoot. They never, uh, I don't remember anybody ever saying anything to us. This was one of the first sequences we shot in the movie, I remember. Before we even went into the mall. Oh, yes, I was about to say it's out of the studio in Valencia. You know, somehow I'm thinking a house. I don't remember, but I'm thinking a house. Well, you definitely shot some exteriors at a house. Uh, right, because and it might have been, this might have been the interior of the house that we shot the exteriors. I mean, all of this is, is flame bars and stuff right. like that in front of the camera. But here, we might have shot in this house. See, all of this, I mean, that's why we had the stunt department we had. We, there was stuff. Yeah, there was. I mean, again, it's, it's, it really doesn't hit me until the end of the picture, certainly. But the cumulative effect is there's just a lot of people falling out of windows, down escalators. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, there's an awful lot going on here in this. And then there's a big sequence coming up with uh, Gregory Cummins' character, a car chase sequence that I definitely want to talk about. Uh, right. So that it's just, you, you know, you for a film that really couldn't possibly have had just by its nature a very robust production budget, you certainly made the most out of it. Well, you know, I I kind of pride myself on that. That's that's what I've been doing ever since. You know, uh, the films that I've made recently within over the last 10, 15 years have been um, small budgets and look like bigger films. So I, I don't know, I kind of fell into that motif of doing that and uh I, I like stretching budgets i like making them look better than they are it ha i gotta admit though over the last few years it's been getting harder well that's what i I'm, i was curious about because i've known several filmmakers who developed that reputation it's like wow they made one million dollars look like ten million dollars but instead of getting a bigger budget for the next film the producers go well if he can make one million look like ten how, what could he do with five, could he make 500,000 look like five million dollars? Well, you know what I hear a lot if if he, if he can make one million look like 10, let's give him a million dollars. right. <laughs> why, why give him why give him more? There's no sense in it. Why give him any more? I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because looking at your earlier films, certainly, and, and Doom Asylum is one where I know you had very little to work with, but again, you utilize that location in such a way that it felt a lot more expensive than it really was. Yeah. We were all over that location. I mean, it, basically, that film was about the location. It was about... Right, exactly. Literally, yeah. about, it, it was, the location was the movie. And one thing I've noticed about your, certainly the, the early work that you did here in the horror genre, and you've touched on this, is that, especially with Doom Asylum, is that you knew exactly what you were making. You, you played to the strengths inherent in the material, which was to be silly and fun and not taking itself too seriously. But at the same time, you, 
you took the process seriously. So it, 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 it doesn't feel slipshod or kind of slack in the areas that it needs to. I mean, this is a very, like, this film is exceptionally well made. And yet at the same time, you're right. It's not trying to be something that it can't be because inherently the material is kind of, it's a, it's a little ridiculous. So, but you well, know Well, you know that. something, Michael? You're 100% right. I never kidded myself about the kind of movie I was making. I mean, I knew it from the start. And, you know, sometimes I, I've made movies since then that um, I thought were better than they turned out. Um, but I took them, I, I took every movie I ever made very seriously. And you have to take this seriously because we got all this stuff going on. So we were making, we were making The Phantom of the Mall and, and hoping that, you know, it would catch on and it would be a movie that people wanted to see. Um, back at the time, you know, this, this movie actually opened theatrically. I don't know whether you know that. Yeah. Yeah, it did. I remember. This, it opened theatrically and they gave, they gave blood pressure tests in the lobby. <laughs> that was, that was from Chuck. They gave blood, Chuck Freeze came up with that idea. They gave blood pressure tests in the lobby and if you didn't pass the test, you couldn't see the movie. A little William Castle showmanship thrown in there for you. Yeah, yeah. It was a different time back then. <laughs> but see, like filming this car chase sequence, I mean, this is, there's a lot. I mean, this is, again, there's cars ramming into each other, barely missing support beams in the parking garage. I mean. Got a guy on top of a car. That alone is a, is a big deal. Yeah. You don't realize all these stunts of how each piece of it is big and that's that's why we shot for seven seven weeks in the you know around the mall had you ever done a car chase sequence that of that to to that degree by this point in your career i had done a car chase sequence but i had never done one to this degree um i did a smaller one and i've done i've done a few since then you know in a movie i did called ground zero which title was changed to California Quake. There's a pretty substantial car chase in there. Um, but we had a little bit more money for that. Not a lot more, but we had a little more. I remember we had to dig that hole. That was not an easy task. That was a stunt in itself. Well, that's it. Slow budget filmmaking. Got to dig a hole. Go yep. dig a hole. Exactly. And so you work with, uh, that's right, you would have worked with Rob again on uh, Silk Stockings. He was on the show at the time that you made. Uh... That's right. I worked yeah. with Rob on Silk and Mitzi Capture on Silk Stockings. All right, Mitzi Capture, that's right. And then, uh, then Mitzi left and Janet Gunn came in. And uh, then... A new guy came in after Rob, and that's where the show kind of. Yeah. That was during the uh, the great syndication days of the '80s and '90s, where all these shows were always oh yeah were always on. You, you could never. I, I saw a lot of silk stockings without realizing I saw a lot of silk stockings. Well, you know, I was like the king of late night. I mean, if you think about it, <laughs> silk stockings went on. Silk Stockings was like 11 o'clock at night. Um, right. Uh, Baywatch Nights was Saturday right. night. I remember it 
like 10 or 10.30 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tales from yeah. the Dark Side was late night. Oh, yeah. That would be the, that would be the time for syndicated television. Now there is there is no syndicated TV. No, there really isn't. No, I mean it's just doesn't that that type of viewing platform just doesn't exist anymore. Right. I, I wanted to ask you about working in television, certainly on a show like Tales from the Dark Side, as an example, where you have, I mean, you have to work fast. You have not only do you not have a lot of money but you have to work really fast because you have three or four days to make an episode and you know, it's just, it's, it's fight or flight. You got to get it done. What, what did that teach you about the filmmaking process? Was that something that you enjoyed being kind of under a time crunch, like having a little pressure on you or was it frustrating for you in that, God, we could do so much more if we just had one more day. Well, you always want one more day. I mean, uh, sure. Yeah. The seven weeks we shot this, I remember I wanted one more day. So uh, once you get over that, um, right. but Tales from the Dark Side was interesting because it was designed to be shot on one stage in pretty much one set or two sets and to be shot in the time that it was shot. So it, a movie like this is more taxing than having shot Tales from the Dark Side because they really had it down, though there was no budget on that. I think each episode was like, I don't know, a thousand bucks or something like that, literally. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it, they were they were cheap tales from the dark side. At least the ones I did. And um, oh no, they they all were. <laughs> they all yeah, were. yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but but the thing about that and the beauty of that was it it was on a stage and it was on a stage and out I shot out here and I shot New York. And, I was going to um, ask whether you shot because I know they had an LA crew and an LA you know version of the show and then a New York version of the show as well. Yeah, I, I started with the New York version, and Bill Teitler, who went on to produce a bunch of other big stuff after that, was the producer, and uh, we shot, uh, I think I did about five episodes or something like that back then of the show, and, but we shot it, it was in Astoria, Queens, and um, it was a little stage, and when you come in, they were already building the sets. Um, and build, building the sets was throwing up some flats, and you know I did a I did an episode of Tales from the Dark Side uh, called Answer Me. Oh, with Jean, with Jean Marsh. Marsh, yes, yes, yeah. I love it's only her. And She's that was the only one, one you see. Yeah, that's it. Her in the phone. Her yep, in the telephone. Yep. Oh, that's my favorite episode. I think of the ones you've done. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, as I said. I, I never questioned what I did. I always uh, accepted it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the thing about Tales from the Dark Side is you get to work with some really good people. I mean, I worked oh, yeah. with Paul Dooley, Paul Dooley on that and um, Adolf Caesar when he was nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, you got him right during that period where he was just about to have done or was going to do The Color Purple and he won the Oscar for uh, Soldier Story. Right, for Soldier Story. And, and then... Um, you know, I've, I've worked with some really good people on that show and, uh, it, being young and just getting in, it's good working. It was great working with these actors and really getting a sense of what it is to work with, with actors who have been trained and around. I learned a lot from them.
I remember we built this. This was on stage. Oh, yes, because I always like the fact that the way you lit it and the way you shot it with the trash compactor is like, well, you know someone's going to die in that trash compactor. You don't set it up and you, you don't set it up like this and not have someone go into that thing. Yeah, we we built the trash compactor. Look at that. You got to put somebody in there. Yeah, I mean it's calling itself out too much. You almost have arrows pointing to it. Like it's just like come on. <laughs> and you don't disappoint. Like, okay. So I, yeah. <laughs> okay, how much longer before he gets in right. there? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, well, it's like, what's the? It's the old, uh, I think it was what, a checkoff thing or whatever it was. Uh, if you set up, if you show a gun in the first act, it's going to be used in the third act. Well, it's like, well, if you show a giant trash compactor in a horror movie, it's going to get used immediately. <laughs> Especially one that says caution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Because yeah, stay clear. <laughs> they're they're not going to stay clear. That's not going to happen. No. <laughs> no. Oh, here we go. I remember this door clearly. It was a wooden door. And uh, we'd move it up and down. And... It doesn't look wooden. You painted it in such a way that... it looks real. But there's also, an, I, I oh. appreciate the economy of storytelling going on here. It's like, again, you, you understand where it is. There's the off and the on buttons clearly labeled. I mean, you're just, you don't have to stop and explain a lot. You just... All right, here's how this is going to work or how it's not going to work, as it turns out for, for Gregory here. Well, as I said about this movie, it's a study in the obvious. I mean, <laughs> right, <yeah>. off on. <laughs> right, yeah. <It's> like, <laughs> speaking of off, his head is now off, so it's, you know, that's the end of... There you he go. Was a, a, he, was a, he was a good presence in the movie. He had a really very, just a threatening aura about him. Yeah, he's he, he's a scary guy. He's actually a really nice guy, but he looks like a scary guy. Oh, we interviewed him the other day. Uh, so yeah, he is a really nice. Oh, guy. did you? Yes, we did. What, we did. did he remember much from here? He did actually. He remembered quite a bit. Cool. I think it would be best if security was a little less conspicuous. Yes, sir. Buzz, what are you doing here? Listen, we gotta find Melody. She's in some big. Let's talk about post production a little bit before we get into the climax of the movie here. Uh, you had, uh, did you run into any problems? Because there's one thing the movie's had a couple different versions floating around out there over the years. Uh, some stuff that was cut out, some violence, and then the movie had a, on television, had a completely different opening. Uh, were you aware of these different versions or did you have those kind of in the works while you were? doing the first cut of the movie what was the process like well what's interesting is i cut the initial cut of the of the film with the editor and we, we cut it together and mm -hmm. um that was not the the sequence where it opens up and he's he's uh working out or, or he's right, uh, right. on the uh, but uh and i don't i don't know where that came from i don't know mm -hmm. how that happened or where it came from i i i'm thinking maybe one reason why that happened is because the opening sequence that I cut was too dark at the time. Mm. Um, and, and maybe they, although they used it in the movie anyway, didn't they use, I think they used it after the, uh, 
the scene where he's doing the gymnastics and stuff. Yeah, but, um, yeah, it's the yeah. They ended up using it. I would have to think that most of the cuts that you see of this film was for TV. Now, I remember one night I walked into a the neighborhood Chinese restaurant, and they had a TV up there, and it was about nine o'clock at night, and CBS, it was Channel Two that was on, and I look up, and what's on there? Phantom of the Mall. <laughs> I'm I'm serious. I, I think it was it was around Halloween or something like that. So somebody somebody said this would be a great Halloween movie, um, and put it on. But um, I'm sure that for for that for that airing, they probably did some substantial cuts. But I I wasn't involved in that. I was involved in the initial cut of the movie, and whatever else it entailed, or any kind of post production. And in terms of the score, you had uh, Stacy. Is, is his last name pronounced Widelitz? Widelitz? Widelitz, yes. Yeah. He had uh, also done a lot of... Uh, he was coming off of another horror movie. He had done Return to Horror High not long before you did mm -hmm. uh, this movie and went on to do a lot of television after that. What was your experience working with Stacy? I, I, you know, I might have met him once or twice, but I, I don't remember. I think we just got the music from him. Or I think... I think Tom was probably more involved with him at the time. Um, you know, I spotted it with him from what I can remember, and, and that was it. But he does have a, an incredible song at the end of this movie. Yeah, well, I want to talk. I want to save that for the end because I do want to definitely want to talk about uh, the, the end credit scene or music for sure. <laughs> Oh, yes, excuse me, just a moment. Peter, anything? No, look, have you seen Melody? No, not since last night. But yeah, look at all the... I mean, you got a lot of... You got a lot of people to come out for this thing when you needed to. Now, if if we had as many people as we had back then now on a movie, it would be the budget of this film. Right. For one day. Right. We did have a lot of people. Could you just put out did you just put out a call saying, Hey, you want to be in a movie, come by the Sherman Oaks Gallery at such and such a time? Or were these a lot of friends of the producers or the cast and the no, crew? No, no, no. They were paid. Oh, okay. Everybody in this movie was paid. Um You know, I learned early on that you don't do a movie where you just have people come down because you end up losing the people and then you can't finish the scene. Right, right. Um but everybody, everybody was paid that was here. I remember that. This is yes, you're you're after this is definitely Polly Shores. You you can see the 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 burgeoning comedic <laughs> stylings of Polly Shore in this film for sure. Absolutely. And I say that with a lot of admiration for the guy. He knew who he was. He knew how to market himself and to, uh, uh, you know, he had a character and a character type that he was very good at. And he knew how to, to get himself out there. And he had a long, successful string of movies. Absolutely. You know, uh, and, and Paulie was good. Mm -hmm. I mean, at what he did, what he does, he's good at it.
I, I mean, uh, I I think that there's a that there's a place for him now if he uh, if he modified it, you know, I, you know, and made it more current. Watching it's funny watching this film again after years of seeing him in the more broader comedies that he did. I think he could actually do dramatic work if he if he really wanted. He to. could. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, he, that's. I think I think Paulie could do absolutely do dramatic work. He was a good actor, Paulie, and he was good at you know and what he did. Now the film, so you finished the movie, and it did get, as you're right, and I remember seeing ads for it, um, it got some, some pretty significant theatrical play for a feature of this type. Uh, do you, do, was there a premiere? What, did you go to, a, to see it in the theater at all when it came out? No, the, I finished the film, and um, I turned it over to, to Freeze, and um, after that, the next thing that I knew about it was it was in the theaters. I there was there was not a lot of uh, um, big, there was not a big deal done after the movie. Um, we finished it and that was it. And uh, then I'm lo- I'm looking in the newspaper one day and I see that it's uh, it's in the local theater. But they, you're you're right. There were, I mean, they were full page ads, and there, there yeah, was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, it they, was not a nation. They spent money. Yeah, it wasn't like a nationwide coast to coast release, but in the markets that it got uh, played in, I mean, they, you know, they certainly it was. Uh, it, it wasn't a subtle small release. They definitely tried to make a big deal out of it, because this was, of course, the late '80s where. You know, slasher killer type movies. These were the, the the you know you were at the tail end of this of the cycle at this point, so that probably ended mm-hmm. up hurting it a little bit. Uh, but you know, it was a film that uh, at the same time appealed to those fans, and yet it it doesn't appeal to those fans because it's it, as you said, it's You're not absolutely right. It's not really a scary film. It's much more of a I don't I don't want to say a spoof, but it's a riff on this type of material rather than being a serious entry in it. No, you're you're right, and uh, you know I I know that Chuck Freeze at the time saw this as his uh, meal ticket to a franchise. His Freddy Krueger, and that he 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 saw, yeah, his Freddy Krueger, his Jason, his mm-hmm. you know, Friday the Thirteenth. But um, the thing about it was, it was not that kind of movie. No, it no. it, it kind of had it kind of had the feel of a one-off movie when we were making it. Um, where do you, where do you go with something like this? Unless it turns out to be a huge hit and then you, uh, <laughs> you, you find know, a way to make it go. <laughs> yeah. You, you find, you find a way, you find a way to make it, uh, worthwhile and, and make a movie of it. Now here's where he goes off the, uh, on fire. Jonathan Goldsmith gets him with a blowtorch. Now, the balcony that he goes off, I went off. That's the one that you went off? Yeah, I, I did the exact fall that he does. I do remember as a, as a, as a big horror fan at the time, and I was collecting everything on VHS, they really made a big push of this thing on, video, on home video on VHS. They got a big, big push, and you could find the tape everywhere. Uh, so it did get right. a lot of exposure, certainly to the horror fans out there. So it was it was a film that was uh, 
certainly didn't fly under the radar. A lot of people saw it. Did you get any feedback from fans or anybody about the film around the time that it came out on video? You know, I, I forgot what I was doing, but I was on to a, I was on to my next film after this. And I, and once this film was done, I was pretty, I was done. Not that I intended on being done, but uh, I kind of lost touch with Tom for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, they had the movie and they were doing what they were doing. So I didn't get much feedback on it. You know, it wasn't a time, it wasn't the day of the internet where that somebody could just email me sure, or, sure. or set up a blog or anything like that. In order for they, somebody to get in touch with me, they really had to get in touch with me. So there was not much after this. You mentioned something earlier, which I thought was an odd choice, and it even confused me a little bit. Adding the subtitle "Eric's Revenge," I thought maybe I had missed something. I said, "Wait, was there another one before this, or something?" Or no, you didn't miss anything. Yeah, uh, you know, they made this film sound like a sequel, right? When it wasn't, right? <laughs> and I, I think I know where what they were thinking. You know, Eric's revenge against the mall. But what they didn't realize, or they did realize, is that uh, Eric's revenge sounds like a revenge to the original the original film. Right. Um, I I don't know. I don't know why they did, and I and I think that might have hurt them in some respects. Yeah, I've often wondered about that too. Yeah, yeah. It didn't seem fresh when it came out, you know, with a title like that. Right. The titles is like, yeah, because if, if people are just like, wait, so there was another Phantom of the Mall or was there another Phantom movie with this Eric guy or what was that, you know? And uh, so people may not have taken a chance right. on the movie because they're thinking, oh, this, this, this is the latest in a long line of films. I don't know, you know, I don't have time to invest in trying to figure it out. Exactly. And I think when you put a film in the theaters and it comes out in the theaters, you want it to be something new and, and, you know, we've never seen it before. Nobody's ever seen it before. And it didn't have that feel, you know, with Eric's Revenge attached to it. And you couldn't miss it. They made it really big, I remember. It was Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. I got to say, this is my first time watching that one particular sequence with the rats there. I could never see anything in that before. I could never make out really what was going on in that particular moment before because uh, the old tape transfers were what they were and they were just so dark. But it's like, Michael, man, I you, couldn't you see... I'm looking at this movie now and I couldn't see half the movie that I see now. <laughs> it's, it's pretty unbelievable. That's why when I watch these remastered you know, versions of the movie, I discover stuff that I never saw before. I, I get it. You know, it's... It's a new vision of the movie. It's uh, oh yeah, yeah. It, it really is. I mean, uh, I th I think that's great. You know, you could never see inside his eye socket. Oh yeah, you know, you can never see this the subtle shading of lighting he's got going on here. You can never see any of this stuff. And I remember when I saw the master, the the remaster of uh, Scared Stiff. I was like, oh, this is actually a beautifully shot movie. Scared Stiff was beautiful. Yeah, it you know, really I, was. I, I took it home and I watched it on my uh, my huge TV with my wife. And, you know, we sat back and I said, you know what? It's not a great movie, but it sure is a good looking movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, mean, it is. It's a beautiful looking film. I mean, yeah. 
it's just one of those movies where it's like again the the video technology that existed back then just couldn't show you the 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 subtlety of some of the photography in that film and even in this like him backing away from the snake you know again most of this was largely unreadable back then absolutely That's why I said we're in the middle of a Richard Friedman renaissance here with the Arrow video releases <laughs> of uh, all of your, you know, some of these early films that you did. And it's just like, no, no, no. Well, I'll tell you something. They, Arrow needs to do one, and it, that was shot high def. So that's that doesn't even require much of a remaster. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, I'll send a note to them saying, hey, if we want to continue this thing, let's keep going. Yeah. We'll fix, figure out who has... It was the first thing that came to me because that it's, I mean, you want to talk about a funny film, an unintentionally funny film. That's a (laughs) funny film. If you, if you haven't seen it, I'll send you a copy of it. I don't know. I know. I'd love to see it. You could probably, you can get it on eBay, I think. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And we did a lot of stunts in this movie. Yeah, again, like I said, when I was reviewing the the film again uh, a couple weeks ago, I was just like, man, the the stunt credit list is going on for a while. I mean, you know, sometimes you think with these low-budget productions you have one or two people to handle it, but you had a full team handling a lot of this stuff. Well, look at what's going on here. I don't even remember all of this. I mean, it's... uh... Yeah, you probably, at this point... And and actually, I think some of these scenes were... uh, being shot when they did that Fangoria article and you were commenting on how it was just, it seemed like nonstop. There was no time to sleep or do anything. You were just trying to get this all done. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, when you do a bigger budget film and you have a a huge crew, we didn't have a, we didn't have a huge crew on this. I mean, we had a, a low budget crew. Um, on the film actually there so uh, it makes this even harder to do in the end do you think if you had your druthers because i've and i've asked this question of a lot of filmmakers do you feel that sometimes not having enough time or money or resources sometimes makes you a better filmmaker because it forces you to be creative it undoubtedly makes you a better filmmaker I mean, I look at I look at some of these movies and that where the directors have all the money in the world to make them, mm-hmm. and that's easy. That becomes easy. But if you don't have any money, and you don't have the money to do what you need to do, you find other ways to do it, and you find ways to do it. You know that are in the end might turn out to be more interesting, and usually turn out to be more interesting. I gotta say, the, under, the underbelly of this mall is very gothic, and it's it's just very <laughs> for for a new mall. This is some pretty scary shit to put together underneath their mall. <laughs> Again, that's what I, I really enjoy. That I like the fact that you just went. I know strategically speaking, this doesn't make any sense, but who gives a shit? It's going to look like a lot of fun. Well, that's what you do. You know, you make a movie like this, and you say, "Who cares?" And I do a lot when I make movies. I do a lot of who cares, you know. I, I never lived down. I, you know, I put my wife in a movie. Um, she played. She had a tiny role, and she didn't even want to do it. But I said, "No, you got to do this, Nurse Sweetie." And she was a nurse in a hospital. And she comes in and she says, she looks at the intravenous thing, 
And she says to me, uh, she says to me, it's too full because her line is, I have to change the intravenous. And she says, it's her, and she came to me and she said, it's too full. It's too full. Well, I said, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Just, uh, it's fine. It'll be, no, no one will ever see it. Well, guess what? Everybody <laughs> saw it. I must have heard 20 people say to me, why, why is she changing the full intravenous bag? <laughs> you know? But the thing about it is when you get caught up in filmmaking and especially on, on you know, time schedules for films like this and stuff like that, you just kind of, you can't, you can't do everything. So you kind of pick and choice and choose your battles. And, um, you know, the intravenous bag was not my battle. I just said, go with it. <laughs> and then a lot of it comes back to haunt you in the end. And one, one thing I just wanted to say to you when I had you here, and I'm not just doing this because you're here and I have the mm -hmm. opportunity to do it just to be nice about it. But you, watching all your early films over the last few years since I've gotten the chance to work on so many of them, you really you really seem to love filmmaking. I mean, you just really seem to have a joy in doing this stuff. This is not autopilot territory for you, even though the, maybe this wasn't the type of film that you would have made had you had, you know, your pick of any kind of project you wanted. You view this as an opportunity to have fun and to put your stamp on this in whatever way you could. And I've always really admired that about you, that this is not just a job for you. Well, you know something? I've been in this business now close to 40 years. And um, the truth of the matter is, I'm still, when I make a movie, I'm still as excited about that movie as I did, as I was when I started. And I mean that. I, I mean that. I, I, I've always loved making movies. And I, I've loved making movies so much, it's why I didn't go to medical school. Uh -huh. Which, you know, could have, been, could have been a better choice in the end. But um, an easier choice. But... Uh, I love to make movies. I mean, I like, I like being creative. And sometimes on films like this, you don't have the choice to be that creative. You just have to shoot it. Ladies and gentlemen, please don't panic, but the mall must be evacuated immediately due to a bomb threat. Please move calmly and carefully to the nearest exit. You see, we so did. You gotta tell me about shooting up and yeah, I was gonna. You gotta tell me yeah, about shooting up. We and rigged the whole again, thing, this... and I, I th we had a second unit rigging all of that while we were shooting somewhere else, because that was some dangerous stuff. We were really on the ceiling of a uh, Sherman Oaks Galleria, and that was really someone hanging there. <laughs> from the sign that was yeah. ripping so she had to be cabled <laughs> to the ceiling you can see the cable look at it yeah but still I don't care cable or not and I you know I've been to a lot of shopping malls where you have these big open roofs like that where there's if you're up there and you fall you're going to fall three to four stories to your death there's just nothing that's going to break your fall whatsoever, oh, except the <laughs> yeah. So again, this just it, it. and the thing is, we had the actor up there, right? I mean, uh, yeah, we had the actor and a stunt double up there. 
Well, yeah, that was going to say, because there's times where you get, you get, even though they're kind of far away, you can tell. It's like, no, that's actually Derek up there. Yeah, no, it's Derek. We put Derek up there. Here's <laughs> uh, where he, he gets fried. Yes, the most interesting man in the world is about to become the most barbecued <laughs> man in the world. Exactly. Money, Eric. I have a lot of money. I'll make a cash settlement with you. Anything, Eric. We can work this out. I have, I have a lot of money, Eric. Eric, I'm really sorry. Look, I may have made some mistakes. I said some bad things. I'll eat my words. Eat this. Yep, that's it. <laughs> now watch where he goes off. Where, where Morgan was going. Of course, <laughs> the big the big tanks labeled propane and just that's of course that's where he's now you see go. Derek goes off too yeah. that's where I went off oh that's oh lord they asked you to do that now would you do it no <laughs> no I, I was I was young and adventurous and reckless and I said come on let's do it and they said, we'll show you how to do it right. That is one thing that goes away with youth, and I'm, a, I, I'm a, well, all too aware of this. Heedless abandon kind of takes a back seat later on <laughs> Absolutely. in Absolutely. Hell, I am not going off of any third floor balcony at any time. <laughs> <laughs> this was a model. No. This was all model. Okay. This was all model stuff, obviously. That's some... I would hope so. I mean, sure, you, you flooded them all. I don't think they'd be even, uh, at this point, maybe <laughs> they were okay with you blowing up half of it. <laughs> so as we wrap up the movie here, watching it again, are you, are you happy with it? Are you think, do, you just, do you think this film has held up pretty well? You want to know something? I, I think it is far better than I remember, to tell you the truth. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 by, it by no means is a great film. It by no means is a really good film, but it, mm -hmm. looks, it looks far better than when I remember shooting it. But that happened with Scared Stiff also. And mm -hmm. uh, it happened with Doom Asylum. Once these films get remastered, they take on a whole different look to them. And when you haven't seen a film in the time I haven't seen, I haven't seen this film in a very long time. Um, I, I, it, it kind of brings back the work that I that we put into it, that was put into this movie. Oh, I want to thank you very much for this final shot, because every horror fan is waiting for him to open his eyes, and he doesn't. And he doesn't. You, yeah, you didn't go but the you know obvious route Michael? of having. Yeah, I did that in other movies where they open their eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just didn't do it in this one. <laughs> now, I gotta ask about this song because every single horror film from the '80s has a tie-in theme song that they play over their end credits or in their opening credits, and 99.9% .9 of them are awful. I mean, they're they 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 age like milk. They're just awful, terrible tie-in songs that really had no no business ever being in a movie, let alone, you know, or even being made to begin with. This song is absolutely delightful. 
I absolutely love the Phantom <laughs> of the Mall song by the Vandals. What can you tell well, me about I can't, this song? I can't take very much credit for it. I mean, uh, it, 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 we knew we needed an, an end song on this, and we knew we needed something uh, with lyrics, and it was written, and it ended up on the movie. And that's about the extent of my uh, involvement in this. It's a catchy tune under any It really is. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's one of those yeah. ones where it's like, this song is way more entertaining than it has any right to be. And it's, uh, I, I got, so I, I, I put Phantom <laughs> of the Mall in the top five easily of the uh, best horror movie punk rock tie in song. Cause, and they all had them. Every last one of them had them. <laughs> uh, so it's just, and it's, I think it's like, he is the Phantom of the Mall, or is he a retard in a broken hockey mask? <laughs> it's like, ooh, that's 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 a lyric that wouldn't fly today. But what are you gonna do? It was '89. <laughs> you know? you want to know something? I gotta take credit for that. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm gonna take credit for it now. <laughs> See, Gary Davis, he was he pretty much ran the stunt department. Gary Davis was it? Okay, yeah. Again, look at the long list yeah. there. That's a huge. He pretty list much of ran people. that whole department. Lance Fisher, I know Lance Fisher. I didn't realize he worked on this. It's actually a, a much more robust crew than you probably remember. Yeah. He's out for blood, now he's out for more. Top floor, too much glass brick. I need that like a snake of mine. Well, anyway, uh, Richard, thank you so much for uh, joining me today to go over your memories of uh, not only your whole career, but specifically, of course, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. And uh, any closing thoughts for the fans out there? No, I, I, you know something? I think this movie is worth seeing. Uh, if you haven't seen it before, take a look at it. Because, uh, well, if they're watching the end of the movie now, they have taken a look at it. So, um, you know, Dr. Michelson, he used to do all of the insurance stuff. You'd have to go to Dr. Michelson and get approved. And he'd take your blood pressure. And... I'm looking at that. You know, a lot of these credits now bring back memories. Anyway, if you've watched it, thanks for listening to us. I appreciate it. And Michael, thanks for the interview. Oh, happy to do it. It was a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thanks, everybody, for listening.